I have no idea what I'm doing, but, <laughs> but I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lowell and Julie, sharing stories, empowering mindsets. Today's guests are Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod. You know them best as 80s, 90s sensation Body Break. The Canadian television hosts are both former international level athletes, Hal with baseball and Joanne as a hurdler. Since 1988, they produced over 300 short episodes of Body Break, as well as a single season television series. They expanded the program into speaking engagements, fitness equipment, and other products. As a mixed race couple, they have faced their share of racism and sought to be inclusive when casting for their Body Break episodes. In 2013, Hal and Joe participated in the first season of Amazing Race Canada. This is the part that we're the most grateful for because that's how we became connected with them. You know, other than growing up admiring their 90-second fitness segments. After our season aired in 2016, Hal and Joe reached out to us, took us out for breakfast, and they haven't been able to shake us since. In 2016, they received the Governor General's Meritorious Service Medal for positively impacting the health of Canadians. Woohoo! Congrats, guys! They have quite the impressive list of guest appearances. Some notable ones include... They were the Grand Marshals of the 2013 Kitchener-Waterloo Oktoberfest Parade and guest anchors on news comedy program This Hour Has 22 Minutes. They self-parodied in a promotion for the Netflix series Santa Clarita Diet and they created a COVID-19 physical distancing segment for the Vancouver International Airport. Our favorite was the Santa Clarita Diet spoof. Google it. (laughs) We had a blast with these two. Enjoy listening to our at times ridiculous conversation. Hal Johnson, Joanne McLeod. Name a more iconic Canadian duo. I'll wait. Lowell and Julie. <laughs> Touche. Nice try. Touche. No, we're not exactly a nationally known household name. <laughs> you are to us. Okay, well, that's all that matters. <laughs> so we just want to touch base about how you guys got started in your sport, your love story, how you met, touch on body break, a little bit of the amazing race, and now relaunching yourselves in, in this technological YouTube world. Okay, sure. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's one of those things where 33 years ago when you start, you, you want to achieve something and you want to do something. And then you get to a certain point after a number of years where you're known and so forth. And then it's kind of, how do you stay up there is a lot more difficult than getting up there. You feel like you're constantly falling down. You're having to grab on to things. And things change so much over the 33 years from media perspective to social media, to technology, to even being able to find resources. They're at your fingertips now, whereas when we started, we were using little booklets from participation, printed booklets. So a lot of things have changed and you just have to change with it. So 33 years ago, if you were thinking about staying on top, would you ever have envisioned yourselves being cannibals on Netflix? For Santa Clarita Diet. When we started, when the idea, June 8th of 1988, when the idea came up, shortly after we shot the pilot and I was out trying to sell it to all different companies and so forth around the country, I put a list together of all the things that Body Break could become. We could do a book, we could do videos. I had a whole list of things that eventually Body Break could become. And a lot of those things on that list came to fruition, which was blind ignorance that I would think that. But I think that's the good thing about youth is that you have the ability to think literally outside the box that anything is possible. Mm. 
So there's always a way you can get through things. There's always a way you can do it. You just have to find your path. I have a question. Joanne, can you describe Hal in three words? Without Handsome. Hal hinting. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> Go get her. <laughs> Are you guys playing charades over there? <laughs> so Hal, describe yourself in three words now. <laughs> um, modest. Uh, <laughs> genuine. <laughs> I'm not afraid to fail. I'm also very blind to a reality, which I find is good because you just keep plowing through. And oftentimes, if you if you look at all the things that are negative that are out there or that possibly won't happen because um, you know I don't have enough money or we're not as good or we don't have the reputation or we don't have the credentials, I don't even think about all those things. I look past it and just go, oh, we can do it. Why not us? Well, Hal told me very early on, just throw as much as you can at the wall and something will stick. And then you had to hire a house cleaner because all the stuff that was sticking on the walls. <laughs> yes, that's right, because Hal will clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> and how big of a role did that poem that your dad introduced you to? Oh, no, it was my grandmother who oh, your grandmother. gave me the poem. That just kind of cemented that for some reason, I felt that I was special. For some reason, I felt that I could do it. And I found that sometimes, you know, people will call you arrogant. I don't feel that way. I'm not better than anyone else. And I find humility to me and other people, I find a very good quality. But secretly to myself, and I think anyone who wants to achieve something, you have to think, I can do this. I don't look at it as arrogance. As a child, I was always told I could do things. Fortunately, my parents, uh, the poem that my grandmother gave me is, uh, you know, called The Man Who Thinks He Can, helped me solidify that idea that, yeah, I can do anything I want to do. And I think even today, there's so many negative things, all social media stuff, and you get bombarded with it from a uh, negative perspective that you think, I can't do things. I'm not going on those great vacations. My life is not as good as any of those. And fortunately, we didn't have that in our day. So I always thought my life was great. Negatives of social media. Eh? <laughs> so I'd like to equal this out a little bit. How can you describe Joe in three words? Now it's Joe's turn for charades. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say never give up, tenacious, which I guess is the same, and focused. Joanne's focused, she's tenacious, and reliable because if she says mm. she's going to do it, it's going to get done. Yeah. A big reason Body Break was a success is because of that tenacity, that grit, that determination that Joe had. Get it done. We started with no real television experience. Hal had done some TV commercials and actually learned while sitting there watching production team, how they set shots and things like that, and uh, took a course just about two weeks after we met and learned a little bit about uh, production then. But I remember the very first day of shooting, we relied heavily on our cameramen and soundmen to really guide us. And we learned an awful lot from them. And so it's keeping your eyes open and and also realizing that you have to take responsibility for what you're doing. And if you can do the job, then you have a much better understanding of what the finished product could be, but also what it takes to get it done. Mm -hmm. I saw in your new YouTube episodes where you're taking us behind the scenes of your original Body Break episodes, you credited Claude, that was your camera guy's name, you largely credited him for your success because he encouraged you not to take yourself so seriously. And when you had a blooper, he's like, keep it, keep it. And it was really endearing and fun. Are you still in touch with him? Yeah, actually, I've, I talked to Claude about a month ago. Our team, Claude Garapi, Phil Kawasoe, Dave Lean, Michael Strange, these names are people who, Dave Clark, 
Uh, Dave Clark, for example, he wrote the music for Body Break. He, he is also the gentleman who says Body Break with Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod. So he does oh, the voiceover for, for Body Break. Dave was instrumental in telling me, he says, when we were putting up the pilot, he said, what you have to do is right off the top, you guys have to be at the front and your names have to be said. Because if your names are said, people are gonna remember that, the mm. audio portion of that, Hal and Joanne. And so I think that's one of the key things for anybody who's starting out, is that you, you look at other people with experience that can help you, you listen to them, mm. then take in their good information. And fortunately for us, we had four or five terrific, terrific people who uh, guided us in the right direction. It's the relationships mm. that are so key on this journey. Yeah. And actually that your good fortune becomes our good fortune because it's Hal and Joe from Body Break, who happen to be sitting here with us, that have helped us launch into our public speaking and, and this podcast. So we do actually want to thank you so deeply for you being some of the people in our life who have helped us achieve and live and grow. So always, thank you. I always think of the ketchup bottle when you guys so graciously took us out for breakfast when we first met you in Toronto and you had a ketchup bottle. You're like, pretend this is an hourglass and you flipped it around and you're like, this is how much time you have to capitalize on this story. Get going. <laughs> I think my thought is that I like to pay it forward because of those people, because mm -hmm. of those people that helped us and were so instrumental in, in helping us that you want to pay it forward and also pay it forward to people that you know will appreciate it. You can put out this information and try to help somebody, but they have to help themselves. If I see that I'm doing more work for their dream than they are, <laughs> I'm out of there. We want to explore that obstacles are opportunities. They're a chance to respond and we actually learn and we grow through those struggles. And starting out Body Break had some obstacles and we'd like to have a little reflection for you. What were the biggest obstacles and what did you learn from them? The biggest obstacle was I thought Hal had $2,000 to start and he thought I had $2,000 oh, no. to start and we were both broke, and, uh, but we found a way. It's one thing to have an idea, but if you can't show someone your idea, then we yeah. felt that it wouldn't happen. So we made every effort to overcome that obstacle of not having the money to get a couple of pilots made. And then Hal had something to sell. I never really looked at it as an obstacle because I didn't think of it as being knocked down. I would come back to my apartment and Joanne would be there after I'd be at a, a meeting and she'd well, how did the meeting go? And I'd say, it went great. Yeah, they really liked the spot. And oh, really? And Joanne said, yeah. I said, yeah, wow, and I'd be enthusiastic. And she goes, well, are they gonna sponsor it? I said, no, no, not gonna sponsor at all. Are they, well, they're gonna call you back? No, no. I said, well, why are you so enthusiastic? I said, well, because they said they hadn't seen anything like this before mm. and they didn't know how it would fit. All I heard was they hadn't seen anything like this before. Mm. And so that's what got me excited saying, obviously, if they haven't seen anything like this before, I'm on the right track. And it's just a matter of opening up the right door and then things are going to go great. Mm -hmm. And so I, I never, of all the doors I knocked on, all the phone calls I made, I never got discouraged at all. Hmm. It was all exciting. And I don't know why, like I, don't, I, I can't tell you why I never got uh, discouraged other than the fact that my history was that I had sold computer systems for about seven years or so and you're told no all the time. Mm -hmm. um. And so I was used to being told no. 
So I, I would think, okay, how can I hone my skill to explain it better? Because if I can explain this to you better, you're gonna buy it. Whether that be a computer, or at the time, word processor, or <laughs> body break. We are prepared. I think that's one of the things is mm -hmm. you have to look at is that proper preparation prevents piss poor performance. So when you go into that meeting, once you get that meeting, you better be prepared and have your shtick down really tight. And by the 42nd interview, I had my stick down really tight and I knew exactly- So 40 second time is the charm. Yeah, I knew exactly how to pitch it. I knew what to do. Again, it goes back to selling. What's important to me as the person with the product, trying to get you to buy my product, in this case it was Body Break. What's important to me is irrelevant. It's what's important to you. I think one of the challenges I found, I went from a job basically nine to five, and now I was an entrepreneur. And one of the challenges was the fact that you had a lot of downtime. On one hand, it was great because it gave you an opportunity to really think things through and to talk an awful lot. We used to talk at night till like two, three in the morning, and then we would have a siesta in the afternoon, and then we realized we can't do that anymore, especially as we got older, we couldn't do that anymore. But the, the challenge also was trying to always realize that this is not going to happen overnight, and you have to be patient and Almost it was like a chess game to me that thinking a few moves ahead, what can we do in order to make this happen? And what are the potential opportunities out there? And I guess that's part of the sales is not thinking inside the box. You have to go mm -hmm. outside, but it was really the amount of time and you just try to be patient. And then I realized that it comes from within. If you believe in your idea and what you want to achieve. The passion inside keeps you motivated and keeps you going so that those little obstacles here and there, you just yeah. ride them. Yeah, I also think that you have to enjoy the journey yeah. and understand that the, the journey that you're on is as much fun as the end result. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed the journey. You know, I enjoyed going to those sales calls. I enjoyed mm -hmm. yeah. that excitement, that adrenaline. That was fun. We've had so many experiences over the years. It's interesting the things you remember. I can remember almost every one of those sales calls. I remember the journey. And I think that's one of the things that people focus too much on what the end result will be right. and not the journey that's going to get you there and understand when everything's all said and done, it's the journey that you'll remember as much as and more than anything else. And I remember those early meetings as well. Hal was so driven that we couldn't even stop for something to eat. And I'd be getting to that 2.30 meeting and I'd be just like wilting. And so that's why, what I remember about those meetings is like, when's this gonna be over? We both had different strengths and weaknesses. I'm not into sales, whereas Hal, that's what he thrives on. I just had this passion for getting the idea across of being active, being healthy, just mm -hmm. feeling good. And so yeah. we, we came from a totally different perspective. That taught us know your lane. So once you know your lane, here's what you do, and you trust that other person that they're going to do it. When we yeah. lived at our house in the city, Joanne's office when we first started was on the third floor and mine was in the basement. And so we had an intercom and quite often we wouldn't see each other for the whole day. I'm working away in the, in the basement and she's up in her office. What I say is I'm sales and marketing 
and then Joanne does all the work. So that's kind of how we have things divided. And today it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> Just I'm on strike. Yeah. <laughs> you got to start a union. Yeah. <laughs> you guys were able to capitalize on this pre-Netflix era TV channels. That's an archaic term. <laughs> and Canadian stations, they had an obligation to fill slots with Canadian content, right? Yeah. And so how many times a week did you guys end up getting played across the Canadian TV stations? Well, we were on 1,500 times a week on about 140, 50 stations across the country. What we found out was that the CRTC had a ruling that in Canada, on Canadian stations, you could only play six minutes worth of commercial time. Well, an American show is, is 22 minutes in length because in the US, they can play eight minutes worth of commercial time. So in finding that out, we were used as Canadian content programming. So we got a CRTC number as a program. The benefit to the TV stations was that we gave them free Canadian content programming with the CRTC number. So they played the heck out of us because they got it free and they put it in their American shows, which were their most popular shows. Yeah. So during NFL football or whatever it might be, we were being seen heavily. It's funny because people said to us that we were YouTube before there was YouTube. Yeah. I always say we got really lucky. Yeah. Also, Canada had 140 stations. Cable and TV stations. All of those cable stations in every small town across the country played that's us. That's why all of our peers grew up with you guys. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, we actually would get the shows dubbed in the format that the TV station required. And then I would do all the labeling and put them in the envelopes. And we'd put them in green garbage bags. And the, the post office just cringed when I would arrive with this. It was like I was Santa Claus with these packages and they had to manually do an awful lot of work in order to get those out oh, to yeah. the station so it was a real process and we were part of every step of the way yeah, yeah that's yeah. awesome and now you're part of most people's halloween stories yes <laughs> <laughs> so how many people do you think or how because people they tag you in pictures nowadays i'm sure they used to send them to you about how many times a year do you see people dressed up as you for Halloween? Yeah, especially interracial couples. I think they identify with us oh, quite, yeah. a, quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes white guys will go blackface, which... Oh, oopsies. But you know, it's funny. I don't really take offense to it. It takes a lot to offend me in that sense. Like yeah. I, you go, well... They're trying to be They're you. trying to be me. Uh, yeah. I'm yeah. not... I just look at it. It's a really easy costume. Yeah. And comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Wear some sport but clothes. But we've never worn headbands. Never. <laughs> never worn headbands? No, but, no. Pe but people oh, in the but thing... But everybody they, does. They make, yeah, it's make us look like Olivia Newton-John in the Halloween pictures. Like, <laughs> that's so Headbands funny. and wristbands. So. We are also guilty of dressing our children up yes. as you guys. We're often very invested in Halloween and dress our kids up as some kind of duo or reenactment every year. And the year they were you guys... Our little guy was four, and my sister was asking him, oh, who are you guys going to be for Halloween? And he said, Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod. And then my sister followed up with, and which one are you going to be? And he very proudly like pumps up his chest, and he was like, why, Joanne, of course. <laughs> and he made a very good Joanne. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing that photo. <laughs> we definitely have to discuss Hal's mustache. I mean, it's a meme of its own. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, I, I grew my mustache when I was originally in high school. I wanted to look older. And then when I got on Team Canada playing baseball, we were over in Japan. And so one of the guys in the team 
said, we were going to be playing against the Cubans and the Americans. And, and he says, hey, we, we, we should look tougher because we're in Japan as a homage to Japanese heritage or uh, the culture. Uh, let's do Fu Manchus. So everybody on the team grew a Fu Manchu. When I got back to North America at university, I shaved it off to my, took the, the Fu Manchu part off and uh, just up to my lip. And I had it for a lot of years, all through the 80s and 90s and... The mid 90s, we were actually skiing in Vail and I had gone to the grocery store and came back and he came out of the bathroom and it was off. He had shaved the mustache and it totally freaked me out. I actually had heart palpitations. Oh no. He looked different, like he looked good, but it was just so, I, I wasn't expecting it. And I remember we were walking through the village that night and I kept staring at him. It was like I was with someone different. But he grew it back for the show. Yeah. I think our daughter was four or five and he decided to shave it off again. And he made sure that we knew he was going to shave it off and he <laughs> prepped us in the whole bed and, and then he shaved it off and then he looked like his dad. <laughs> so, oh. But that mustache has had a life of its own. Yeah. I miss it sometimes, but it's a <laughs> lot of maintenance. And he's not a high maintenance guy. No, I'm not high maintenance, so. It, it had to go. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you grew it back, what, two years ago yep. for uh, an ND mattress commercial. Oh, they wanted the iconic cow. The yeah. throwback. Yes. Yeah. And what, what, I, what we did was, the whole premise of the, the commercial with Indy was that the mattress helped you grow your mustache back. And so <laughs> we did the end part of the shoot first, where we shot on the bed, and I have the mustache on. I then went in, shaved it off, and then we shot the beginning. It's called editing, but... Uh, yes, editing. Uh, <laughs> also, I don't think that would help me buy a mattress. I don't want one that grows me a mustache. Yeah, me either. <laughs> you spoke a little bit about being on Team Canada, and we are in, in a bit of a theme here with our obstacles and opportunities about athletics. And you guys have your own sports stories. You weren't just selling a product. Right? You're encouraging a lifestyle that was based upon fitness, that was based upon wellness. So it would be neat to go back into your early life stories and say, what role did sport have in your lives? I know for me, sport was everything. It gave me confidence to feel special, feel different. The talent came out of nowhere in the sense that, you know, you'd be in the schoolyard and the boys couldn't catch you when they would try to tag you. And then they'd <laughs> set up races, you know, in the schoolyard to see who could beat you. And so I realized I had something. I was fortunate enough to have a high school gym teacher who was a hurdler in the 68 Olympics on the Canadian team for 80 meter hurdles. And she encouraged uh -huh. me to go to a track club. And I, you know, I was like, I don't know, you know, everybody else is going to be so good. And I remember that first day of going to practice, my dad took me down to the subway station. I got on the subway to go to High Park because it was a, a training session in October and we were just going to run through the park. Well, I just rode the subway that day. I never got off because I was so petrified. And oh. luckily the coach called and encouraged me to come out. And there's people in your life that actually paved the way for you. And I went on to run track and field, 80 meter hurdles, 100 meter hurdles. And through high school, when I was in grade 12, I made the 76 Olympic training camp, ran my very first 100 meter hurdle race in California. 
And then from there, just kind of plotted away and was fortunate enough to make international teams like the World Cup and the Pacific Conference, Commonwealth Games. And the biggest obstacle for me was injuries and trying to always overcome them. And now when I look back on it, we are so much more sophisticated than when we were back in the 70s and early 80s. Yoga would have helped a great deal. Strength Mm -hmm. training, we never strength trained at all. And Mm -hmm. those little things would have made a huge difference in making sure that all your muscles are balanced. My athletic experience got me to the point where when I did meet Hal and he had experienced sort of the national team level, right away we had something in common. And you had an extra hurdle, (laughs) pardon the pun, (laughs) in your sport, because in any sport, pull muscles and stuff, but you could actually like nail your leg against that hurdle. How many times did you do that and how bad does that hurt? My knee took a wall up a few times and, and it never failed. You'd hit it once, the next time you would go out, you'd hit it again. Uh and uh, just be reminded. But you know what? I never have a problem with that knee at all. So I guess uh, you're... So kids, bang up your knees now and uh, they'll be good later. (laughs) Exactly. No arthritis at all in that particular spot. Hal, you ended up playing... Well, you were captain of like everything in high school and then you specialized in baseball? Yeah, well, my dad played baseball and you know really encouraged me to, to play ball. And I loved hockey, I loved baseball, but I was better at baseball. So I ended up going to junior college in California and played there for two years. So I got a scholarship, a full ride at the University of Colorado to play. I had offers at different universities in the States after playing a, a junior college. And when I was at University of Colorado, there's another guy, Roger Speller. And Roger was our center fielder and he was from Toronto. And Roger, we were talking, he says, yeah, he's going to be trying out for the national team. And I looked at Roger, he was batting like about 250, and I'm batting about 320, and I'm going, I'm a better hitter than him. Why is he trying out for the national team and I'm not? So I wrote a letter to the national team coach, and basically saying I want an opportunity because, you know, I'm here at Colorado. That year, I led the Big 8, which was our conference, in hitting. It hit almost 400. So with wow. that, I got an invitation mm-hmm. to the national team camp, and both Roger and I made the team. And we traveled around the world. I remember thinking making the national team was as important as getting a degree from university on my resume. And it turned out to be that way, because I, I would go on job interviews at my fourth year at university, the companies would come to the campus, IBM, Honeywell, all these different Xerox companies, and they would interview you. And I interviewed with 12 companies. I got 11 second interviews and I got eight job offers. Wow. I must say I was kind of a, a B student-ish, <laughs> B on a good day. Uh, and that is so good. <laughs> it wasn't my academics that did it because 90% of our job interview was talking about baseball. It was talking about what I did on the national team. How was it performing at that high level? I knew when I was on the national team, I said, this is huge for later on and how you were going to be viewed upon by those people who never was on a national team and and think of it as, wow, pretty impressive. I remember 
distinctly when I got the call in Edmonton, because what we were doing is we were traveling across Canada at our camp. We went from Windsor to Edmonton, and then we were, the coach was gonna go to your room, and there was 29 guys still on the roster, and they were only taking 25. So there was oh, wow. four guys gonna be cut in Edmonton. They had three first basemen, and I was one of them, and they were going to cut one of the first basemen. They would come to your room and give you an airline ticket, and then that's it. And they came to our room and I got a ticket to Korea. And the other guys got a ticket back home. And oh, wow. so- Oh man, ouch. Yeah. Sliding door moment. <laughs> it was, I didn't sleep that night, but I felt pretty good about it because I hit two home runs in the final game in Edmonton the day before. And I thought that would solidify me. Yeah. It's funny, a lesson that I learned through that whole process was there was three first basemen and we're, we're all vying for trying to make the team. And what would happen is one guy would sit out, one guy would be the designated hitter, and one guy would play first for that game. The guy who's sitting out, you'd go, you'd be rooting against those other people. Oh, I hope he strikes out, I hope he strikes out. Oh, I hope he doesn't do well. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then what would happen is if he didn't do very well, I would notice that, ah, I let up and I was like, I didn't do very well when I played, but when they did, I go, oh, I got to right. do well. And then I, I realized during yeah. near the end of that process, I can't think negatively. I can't think about what they do. I just have to deal with what I'm doing. And it's me making the team, not them not making the team. But what was interesting when we met and that very first night we had dinner together, we both realized one of our regrets with our athletic experiences was that we never really felt we gave 100%. There was always that doubt that what if we had pushed a little harder? What if we had given it a little bit more? What would have happened? And that was what took us into when we started thinking about body break and then doing it was we got to give this 150%. And at times, maybe it was overkill in terms of the amount of energy and effort we would put forth. But it came because we felt that we somewhat took advantage of having this ability, this physical ability in our sports and not taking it for granted. And we didn't want to have the same regret with body break. And we do that with everything we do. Well, for the Lowell and Julie Obstacles and Opportunities podcast, I think you had to put out all the stops. <laughs> People think, you know, like, oh, it was overnight sensation or whatever that might have been, or, or they got lucky, yeah. which Took we certainly did. Took 13 years to get that overnight success. <laughs> yeah. That's right. We were prepared. When opportunity knocked, we were prepared. Yeah. And I think that's the thing you have to think about. And I find, and I, I certainly don't want to, say come down on painting everybody with the same brush, but society today is so much quicker, has so much less patience and mm -hmm. feels success should come so much quicker. And it, yeah. it doesn't. I remember when we got the contract from Participation and we did it for about a year. Joanne and I said, geez, if we could do this for another year, wouldn't this be unbelievable? And then mm -hmm. we did it for the second year. And then we did it for a third year. And it was like, we still always thought we may have to go back and get a regular job. And then after about 10 years, we realized, I think we're okay. 
You know, we've done this for 10 years. Well, we always thought there were, we were on a bridge and it was falling behind us. And we had to keep right. going, oh. keep going and going. And that's, I guess, yeah. your your own way of keeping motivated and not taking it for granted. For the most part, things happen when you make them happen. And a handful of times things would happen and we go, wow, that came out of the blue. When we get a speaking engagement through a speaking bureau or something to that effect, you go, wow, that's like a gift. It's like, yeah. It's, yeah, they came know, to you. Just fell in your lap. <laughs> that is an interesting point too. We're living in a time that's creating a lot of obstacle for a lot of people. This obstacle of a pandemic, when we're public speakers, when we go out to present to big groups, which we can't have, we're trying to do something that then an obstacle comes in the way and we have to decide how do we pivot? So what have Hal Johnson, John McLeod from Body Break done to pivot in a pandemic when you do public speaking? When it happened in March, basically everything started to shut down in March. Literally everything hit the fan. And like everybody else, I think, Joanne and I had a number of speaking engagements. We had quite a few set up. And so we were like, okay, what's gonna happen? I was a deer in the headlights for most of March into April, kind of like, I don't know what to do. And then mm -hmm. I just thought about it, it was like, okay, well, out of chaos comes opportunity. And so it's chaos now. And I would, I called yeah. the speaking bureaus and I said, what are you guys doing? They're going, bleh, 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 bleh. we don't know. <laughs> like we're trying this virtual stuff. So what I did is I started to investigate about doing a virtual talk, but I thought, well, how do you do it better than somebody simply having a, a computer looking up their nose? How can you do something that is... What could be better than that? Well, yeah, <laughs> far more dynamic, right? And so I investigated and invested in equipment. Joanne and I are used to speaking to a camera. This is oh. right up our wheelhouse. Yeah. This is going to be easier for us. And we don't have to get on a plane and we don't have to travel. We just can stay here. Don't have to leave your house. <laughs> yeah, well, we can stay in the gym. Here's where we are, you know? I bought the ATEM Extreme. I did. Joanne looks thrilled over yeah. there. <laughs> more, more, equipment. more equipment. She's covering her ears. Go on. She, you know what's funny? <laughs> she, she gives me the, oh, how what are you doing again? And then begrudgingly, only if I bring it up, I was like, wasn't this a good idea? She'll go, well, kind of. In most cases, it's a good idea. It's just that there's an awful lot of added stress with learning the new stuff mm -hmm. that I yeah. worry that it takes away from the amount of energy that you can put into the presentation. With the new equipment, it allows us to do a recording of our presentation and then resell that presentation, which companies have asked for. This pandemic created an opportunity for us and we've had a lot of presentations done right here. This is better than a live presentation. What I explain to people who call us to book us, I say, don't think of us as a speaking engagement. Think of us as a TV show. You're being entertained. The keys to overcoming obstacles and seeing the opportunities is that you've got to be excited. You have to be excited about it and you have to be confident that I have no idea what I'm doing, but, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> you can see that it can work. Uh, yeah, but I yeah. have no idea how it's going to work, but I know that I'm going to make it work. And I'm going to work it. Yeah. Like it drives Joanne crazy. You know what? It only drives me crazy because things constantly change. You know, there's times when you just want to take a breath and not yeah. have change. I always have total respect for the fact that he puts himself out there 
He yeah. loves to investigate. He wants to find an, a better way of doing yeah. something. It's just sometimes tiring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you just spoke about what it means to you, what obstacles mean and opportunities. And it gave us a little bit of an insight through a talk so far about your mindset. And we have a bit of a, a segment right now that we want to bring in. And this is to check into what words mean for you. And this comes from Fred Penner. And this episode, I'm going to play it right now. This is this little clip, the word bird. This was released the same year of Body Break, 1988. Here's Fred Penner and his, his word bird. Word bird. Okay, partner, send down the word. Hup, hup. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Oh, see what the word is today. Oh, see what oh. the word is today. So what's the word? <laughs> Thanks, Fred Penner. You guys Throw look very impressed and not horrified at all. <laughs> so we're going to ask you four words each. The first one, I'd like to ask Joanne. What does the word vitality mean to you? A zest for life. Nice. Hal, inclusion. Inclusion is that you don't judge others. You are simply just part of the fabric of the community. Mm. Joanne, challenge. Hard work that pays off. Mm. And how? Limits. The word limits to me is negative. That unfortunately we put limits on ourselves. You shouldn't put any limits on yourself. Mm. And two words in the keep fit and have fun. Joanne, what does fit mean to you? Enjoying every day, being active. And fun for how? What does fun mean? Being a kid and doing what you want to do when you want to do it. I'm still like 14, 15. And I want to stay that way. <laughs> yeah. And last word, Joanne, retirement. <laughs> Doing what I want when I want. <laughs> Dream. Would that go hand in hand? Yes. <laughs> and Hal, free. I think of freedom often in terms of financial. Money isn't important, except it gives you freedom to do what you want when you want to do it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you for playing along with WordBird. I like Joanne's words better than I, my words. Oh, I, <laughs> it's funny, when you said Vitality for Joanne, I go, oh, that was one of our sponsors. Vitality, the, the government mm -hmm. uh, program with, that we did well. Yeah, that's what, it means. that's what it means to me. And they paid us, so I felt free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it all ties in. It is interesting. One of my early memories of Body Break when I was just a kid we saw one of the Vitality Soup Body Break episodes and my mom made Vitality Soup and we'd often have it. And I grew up eating Vitality Soup. It was really interesting. I'm partly who I am today because of that Vitality Soup. Don't blame us. <laughs> that reminds me, Joanne, were those some of your favorite episodes to make, the ones with the recipes? Was that fun for you? Not no? really. I, you know, <laughs> I became a food stylist real quick. The cameraman, Michael Strange, and I would spend hours in the kitchen trying to make everything look pretty. And I'm a really picky eater, so I had to venture out and, and use ingredients that I don't normally use. And some of the recipes were tested and some weren't. Some were not. Usually Hal had to <laughs> test I, I, them. I, I, Was Hal a really good actor when he would eat? They thought, mm, yum. I can eat anything. <laughs> You're like Lowell. That's why, like on The Amazing Race, I was like, I was going to do any food challenge, bring it on. I, I'm not great yeah. into the eyeballs, but if I had to, I would do it. Yeah. Joanne, it's like, pepper. Oh, 
uh, that's a little bit on the risky side, you know, like uh, salsa. Oh, I like things that make you cry. I'll be eating something and, and I go, oh, here, try this. So, and she'll try it. Oh, my God. Mom is, oh, my God. That's why most of the recipes were pretty simple. And actually, my favorite, which I would make, over and over again was this cheesecake with actually at the time we were working with a company with a it was a form of mayonnaise but it was really low in fat and low in calories and i absolutely loved it and i would make it all the time and unfortunately the company no longer made the body break dressing so i can't make it anymore but huh. you know, most of the recipes we actually would make and i like things that are quick and you know quick yeah. chili was Kind of a mainstay around our house. Yep. That's very relatable. It would be the chili, but then I would put in all the spices after she yeah. joined made it yeah. to really give See, the it thing some. with, like, Joe, I kind of get you with the spice because for me, it kind of strips my taste buds and then I can't even taste anything else if it's too much. Like once we were having, was it California rolls or something, Lowell? And I thought a piece of avocado fell out and I like shoved it back in and took a bite, but it was a hunk of wasabi sauce. <gasps> And I like, I was like, water, water. I had to like spit it out in the garbage and I couldn't taste anything for the rest of the day. Yeah. Well, at the University of Colorado, when we were traveling, again, we're, you know, 19, 20 year old guys. So you have to have a competition even when you eat. And so we're, you know, playing in Albuquerque or Texas or different, you know, Southern states. And we would go to a restaurant. We'd, okay, we'd all be sitting together and, okay. Who could eat the hottest stuff without drinking water? We would have these chili peppers that were on the table and we'd have competitions in eating the chili peppers. <laughs> and then you'd be crying, literally crying, because you wouldn't want to grab some water to, or milk yeah. to put it out. And so you'd be sitting there for like 20 minutes just crying to try to win. You really wanted to win. <laughs> Nothing, but you wanted to win. So. so speaking of trying to win and crying, you guys were on season one of Amazing Race Canada. Good transition, Lowell. Hey, hey. Perfect analogy. Interested in what did you learn about obstacles and opportunities through the Amazing Race Canada season one? That was a long time ago. What was that, 2013? Yeah, yeah. but it, felt, it feels like yesterday. What I learned even more, and every contestant says this kind of same thing, is they realize they could do more than they thought they could do. They often put limits in front of themselves and they, they push through, they're forced to be pushed through those limits. I did a little bit of that, I would say. We were pretty workmanlike in our approach to it. Joanne thought that we were pretty poor television, so she tried to have to, oh gee, I gotta spice things up by talking more because we were very workmanlike. I think, you know, the race, I, I walked away with the same feeling that, wow, I was able to do more than I thought. And it was more of a self-evaluation of finding something new about yourself that you didn't realize. I also realized how people handle disappointment. And it is different. Everybody handles disappointment differently. I know when we got back, I just wanted to totally distance myself from it and start back new goals and my goal was to get in shape to do a triathlon and so my my focus was that and that was what got me over disappointment other people i had heard they'd like to think about well what if and nice. that helped them get over the disappointment and it is interesting how and you guys, can, I'm sure, can attest to this, is the mental aspect of the, the race, the things that you're left with, is quite different. It's almost like, uh, unless you're on the race, 
it's difficult to really comprehend. I can relate to what you're saying about feeling like you can do more now. I remember in the year after we were on The Amazing Race, I was putting together one of those big Ikea dressers for our boys' room. And I'm like, I put together a scooter in Vietnam by myself. I can put together this dresser. I looked at it. Okay, how do I take this opportunity that we were given and parlay that? So we won by being on the race. How do I capitalize on this situation? How do I get more speaking engagements because of this? How do I get more sponsorship because of this? And from the amazing race, so many opportunities have come to us. Mm because of all the promotion and everything I did, McLean's Magazine came to us and, and they did a, a feature on Joanne and I. Well, the writer of McLean's Magazine was a comedy writer for This Hour Has 22 Minutes. After our interview, she asked, would we be interested in being on This Hour Has 22 Minutes? I said, absolutely. We went out to Halifax <laughs> and we did This Hour Has 22 Minutes. When you look at things as getting a U-turn that we did, which again, if we hadn't been U-turn, we would have won the race. We realized that, like we know that anyway. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> we had the final question, which was flags and flowers. They had to match up all the flags and flowers. We recognized that that was going to be the final question on leg two of the race. Mm -hmm. And so on leg four, we had an opportunity to get to a computer and we printed out all the flags and flowers. We cut them up and then Joanne arranged them so that she was trying to, okay, this goes with this, this goes with that. We knew she was gonna do it and she had it all done. Like we would have done Aww. it in 15 seconds. And that was the final challenge to win the Amazing yeah, Race Canada. Yeah, the whole entire first The other season. teams were, uh, oh, took struggled. a long, well, two of the teams didn't finish and the yeah. other team took a long time to do it. So yeah. we, we know we would have, um, would have won, but, but not to <laughs> that's say, how confidence coming not, through. Not to say that I think about it at all. Oh, oh no. <laughs> not to say that, that you're bitter or anything. <laughs> what I think about as well, and I go, if we would have won, what other opportunities would have come our way? I see some of the winners, which I'm surprised with, that they haven't parlayed more of it. Now, Tim, the Tims from our season, Tim with Parkinson's has done more mm -hmm. with his, he has parlayed his, but some of the other people I haven't really heard much about them or, or if they even have that mindset to, you've been given this opportunity, how do you make it even more? Maybe if you're also given a quarter of a million dollars, you're not as motivated to turn that into other opportunities. Right. But, but you know, <laughs> the money is not that much. Like it really yeah, no, isn't. It's not. You think of a, like a quarter million, oh, that's, that's great. You go through that pretty quick. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't turn it down, but... <laughs> but everybody's reason for being on the race is different and everybody's takeaway is different and what they want to do with their life and how it's structured, so... We never had any delusions that we would even come close to winning. We didn't even really think that we might even finish the first leg, but we did. <laughs> and then every leg after that was job. a bonus. It's all a gift. It's funny because I never thought about losing. I didn't think about winning, never thought about the money. The money was irrelevant. When we were on the starting line, because we were the first season, they, and they hadn't said what you're going to win. And oh. so the executive producer of, of The Amazing Race came out just before John Montgomery was going to say go, and he said, do you guys want to know what you're racing for? Dave from the Jet and Dave team said, I don't care if it's a Tim's card, let's get this race going. <laughs> and that's exactly how we felt. And then they said, well, it's a quarter million dollars. 
two Corvettes, and we go, Joanna and I look at each other, oh, yeah, a quarter million. Yeah, that's, okay, uh, that's great. Better than a kick in the head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, two Corvettes. <laughs> I'm not really a Corvette guy, but maybe we can trade it in <laughs> for something else. And then they said, two first-class tickets, as much as you want to fly for one year with Air Canada. And we go, now you're speaking our language <laughs> that, that was exciting but not once during the race did we ever talk about or think about the prize when you think about obstacles and opportunities that if you're focused on the prize all the time you're forgetting about putting your one foot in front of the other mm -hmm. the prize will take care of itself at the end of the day yeah mm -hmm. and you see when people or teams Get I'm close to winning that prize or talking about the, the win, you've got to talk about the work. You've got to talk about right. what you've got to get through and, and how you can get through that. And the prize will take care of itself. Yeah. I remember thinking while we were on the race, some people would be, people who are consistently like in the top two would be so upset that they didn't win that leg. And we're like, what are you talking about? We're still here. Like, we're just, we're just glad we didn't lose. Yeah. <laughs> we're glad we weren't last that leg. Yeah. Woohoo! <laughs> and really, when I think back on the race, it is about just making it through to the next round. And so mm -hmm. that you can maybe approach it with a little less stress. Yeah. Because if you are wound up and winning, it's another level of stress that you don't really need to add. Mm -hmm. It's been interesting chatting with you guys about the race. I mean, we've talked about it a ton in the past. And it sounds like season one was a bit of a gong show. They're just trying to put the Canadian race together. You guys didn't have wash and folds or anything like that, right? Like you had to wash your own clothes with a bar of soap or whatever you may or may not have had. We would have prepared a lot differently. I think actually we had the golden season because even talking to people from seasons after us, they didn't have wash and folds, but we did. And we had amazing hotel stays and, amazing and food, food. Oh, like room man. service food. Well, I was too stressed. I couldn't eat, but Lowell got to eat both of our meals. So I that was food yeah. Yeah. I, I came back from the amazing race, like 15 pounds heavier. And you I was 15 pounds oh, lighter. You can't exercise anywhere. It's, yeah. You're just sitting around all the time. And so he's a stress eater and I'm a stress not eater. Yeah. <laughs> and we had food restrictions. Yeah. And Jet lost 15 pounds, oh, actually. That's crazy. And he took protein powder with him. That's food smart. was rationed. Wasn't there a pit stop night that you guys had to sleep on top of a houseboat outside <gasps> in May in Canada? In Colombia, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it wasn't bad. <laughs> Two teams had to sleep on top because they got there late, but yeah, they got there late. That's, that's on <laughs> That was on them. So. When people ask now, how would you prepare? Because everyone wants to try to get on it. And I, I don't honestly know that, that you can really because it's different. It's different every year. <laughs> Hal has some thoughts on that. How would you oh. prepare? You would take one knapsack and you would basically have what you're wearing as well as another change of tights and uh, another t-shirt and another pair of socks. And that's in a shaving kit and that's it. So you we packed way, way too, too much. much. The night before the start line in uh, Niagara Falls, I left shirts that I had never worn in the hotel room. And every leg after that, I did the same thing. I ended up having a, a hamstring problem after leg four. And I wonder mm. how much uh, an issue the bag was for me. That oh it, yeah. Cause it was heavy. Yeah. We had extra shoes, just way, way too much. Yeah, but then you have Jillian from our season who she did lose her shoes. 
Yeah. And she had to go to the line with, she borrowed somebody else's shoes. They didn't fit or one shoe. Anyways, if that happened, be like, oh, yay. I'm so glad I brought these extra shoes with yeah. me. But it's, <laughs> it's so much what ifs. And just Thinking in case. Thinking of all these things that could go wrong. Like we had yeah. knee pads because if we were on our knees oh, wow. for too long, we had gloves. We had like, <laughs> if it rained, we had rain suits. And we realized that all of that stuff really wasn't necessary. So Hal, if you were asked to do the race again and you were asked to choose to do it with somebody other than your loving partner, Joanne, who would you do it with? Better say uh, that's, what, that's what I said that for. <laughs> 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 oh, Lowell, that's right. Oh, yes, correct. You are correct. Next question. No, just kidding. How would that go, you and Lowell on the race? Well, you know, what people don't realize is that you do the race but you spend most of the time in a hotel room with the other person. What can have a very positive or very negative effect with you is that other person in the hotel room. If you're not jiving with that other person, because you have no magazines, you have no uh, radio, you have no television, you got that other person. And if that- No phones, yeah, no books. You don't even have the Gideon Bibles. They took those out too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and actually the U.S. did basically the same experiment where they put- people who didn't know each other together oh, as yeah. teams and some teams worked well together and others it was yeah, so many people said good. to us and they might have said to you too because you're a married couple like oh at least you guys are married you had stuff to do wink wink and we're like well we're not animals but like <laughs> yeah we, we do enjoy each other's company thank you <laughs> so well, you're mostly looking forward to all the hotel stays with Lola is what you're telling me that is part of the race as well. What you see is such a, a small portion of that time. Oh yeah. That time in the hotel room went by really fast. I was strategizing, thinking about, okay, well this or that, how can I do it better? I was always thinking about, well, we're in Kelowna, golf is very popular. We are golfing tomorrow. Yeah. So be prepared, we're golfing. Yeah, so I go It never happened. Yeah, never. So I didn't like the downtime for that very reason because yeah. I didn't want to think about it and get anxious about it. And I was like, oh, other people are probably strategizing and that makes me anxious because I don't want to strategize. Yeah. <laughs> and then also that's when I would think about our kids because they were three and four. Yeah. And you know, we didn't have communication with them. So whenever we had those downtimes, I was uh, quite emotional. Would you say, lol? <laughs> Crying <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Sierra was, she was in grade eight, I think at the time. So we weren't as concerned. We were thinking they were calling her and giving her updates, but we later on found that they, they weren't, and that was a little mm -hmm. disconcerting. Oh, shoot. She was worried about her parents. Oh, yeah, of, course. of course. What we did was we recorded like 20 or 25 videos, right, Lil, of us doing like songs or reading a book or normal routine things. Or when we were at Mech in Calgary, we went inside a tent because they thought we were on a backpacking trip, which, you know, ah. as close to the truth as we could say. Mm. And uh, we were in a tent. We're like, hey, guys, we just set up our, our tent for the night. They thought they were getting these live <laughs> videos of us. So they thought we were much more present than we were. Plus, we rapped about I don't even 60 presents. They got open a present almost every day from us. Even now they're like, when are you guys going to go do the race again so we can get a present every day? <laughs> so we were very present to them, but they were not present to us. So we were the ones that were suffering. And they say that still now. They're like, we had more fun than you guys did. <laughs> Probably. Would you do it again? In a heartbeat. Yeah, usually when people ask, Lowell doesn't even let them get the question out and he answers. Yes, I would of course do it with Lowell. It was definitely a lot more stressful for me. So if there's an option for Hal and Lowell to do it together, <laughs> I would definitely support that. <laughs> but don't you feel a little bit more confident because you kind of know what to expect? It's almost like you know to 
expect the yeah. unexpected. So you yeah. you go, okay. I Well, yes and no, because then I kind of feel like all of a sudden there's more pressure too. What I find is that the race is a lot simpler yeah. than people make it out to be. They make it far more complicated. Mm -hmm. And you have to realize yeah. the production company, they've been thinking about this challenge for like a year. You can see the simplicity yeah. of their challenges and how they're how it's coordinated. And yeah. I overthought it yeah. Oh, yeah. too much and I wasted too much energy and I think that's the key to the race mm -hmm. is to be able to conserve your energy, emotional energy. The whole thing is though, yeah. and you know that people hear rumors or hear something mm. and we already yeah. knew that we had a huge target on our backs at leg four. When the group is together and then you walk in and you go, okay, this, this is not a good vibe whatsoever. You don't appreciate things being said that aren't true, but I was more concerned about being able to run with a hamstring pull. The biggest thing about the race, you have to know when to be down and when to bring it up. And I think that's yeah. experienced mm -hmm. racers. That's yeah. what they know. And that's when they talk about hitting your stride, the third, the fourth leg. Yeah. I don't need when to run honest. right now. This is when we need to run. This is when we need to just take it easy and relax. Mm -hmm. If you were to do it again, there'll be other obstacles. And yeah. and I think the consistent thing is the stress and the role stress yeah. plays with mm -hmm. your, your mind, your yeah. thinking patterns, your breathing. You're on high alert and you're not often thinking as clearly as you are, let's well, say in a conversation mm -hmm. like this. You have to kind of step back and say, okay, what's production doing to try to heighten stress Mm -hmm. And what's yeah. really uh, real there. Yeah, seeing yes. the sleep deprivation and the, mm -hmm. the different things that they do to try to amp up the stress and make it more emotional. And, yeah. Yeah. and I always thought that too, if anything was risky, I'm like this is a TV show, they're yeah. going to have their insurance, everything else. Exactly. So it's, yeah. it's, it's safe. I can bungee jump off a of SkyTram in Jasper. I can rappel down the Calgary Tower. Like all this stuff is, is safe. Yeah. And I just get to enjoy it. Yeah. Be present. Yeah. The biggest thing that I learned in that, if we ever did it again, I would take into that race is I would trust my gut more and I would not compare myself to others because I always assumed that other teams knew what they were doing. Yes. And then it wasn't until we watched it. I'm like, oh my goodness, they had no clue what they were doing. When we were driving, I never fully committed to either paying attention to what other people were doing or trying to look at a map myself because Lowell wasn't able to look at the map. It was too small and out of context in an unfamiliar environment. So that was tricky, but I never fully committed to following someone else either. If I saw someone go somewhere else, I'm like, oh, they have two sets of functioning eyes. They probably know what they're doing. So I would second guess seven times out of 10, I would say my gut was the right thing to do. Yeah. Our favorite leg was in Vietnam, in Ho Chi Minh City. And I think one of the reasons it was my favorite was because we were mostly on our own, not comparing ourselves to anybody yes. and we could just enjoy it and be present. Yes. Yeah. And I find that kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier about baseball. I learned from that to shut other people out. And I did the same thing on the race for the most part, mm -hmm. not to focus on what they can do. And what we, Joanne and I both looked at is that we're not competing against these other people. We're competing mm -hmm. against the course. We're competing against yeah. the obstacles. So yeah. I can't control what they do. I can't sabotage them. I can only control what I do. So don't focus in on them. The stress happens when there's a lot of teams in, in a, yeah. a challenge together and you're you know peeking yeah. over, are they ahead of us? Yeah. Are they, well, understand every time you look away, that's distracting and taking time off of what you do. And so yeah. one of the things Joanne and I said prior to the race, is that during a challenge, we are never going to yell anything out 
when the other person has to do a roadblock. We are never going to yell anything out, uh, encouragement or anything. So we're not going to, oh, way to go, go, come on, come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it, way to go. Because they know that voice and they'll hear and recognize that voice. And it's a distraction. Distraction. So I know when Joanne was doing the country line dancing in Calgary and I was on the railing there and I was like, ooh, I wanted to say, <laughs> I was like, oh, I wanted to say something, but I, I, I couldn't say, I was like, I was holding it in. What I don't understand is when teams start yelling at the other person, you know, whether it be encouragement or come on, come on, you can, whatever. Yeah. That other person wants to do it just as bad as you do. So why yeah. are you yeah. yelling at that person? It's just distracting. But I, I'm like you, yeah. Julie. Now you realize that other teams were struggling. Mm -hmm. And yet I kept thinking they've got it under control when in fact yeah. no one. Because I know a couple of times we would arrive on the mat and we're like second or third and we're going like, we had so many difficulties. Yeah. Why aren't they here yet? I would have more confidence, I know, doing the race. Yeah. Mm. Our very first leg, I thought for sure we were going home. I was the last one done the last roadblock. And we got on the mat and we were fifth. We passed five teams on the way to the pit stop. Yeah. And that was in Jasper. We could not find a place to sleep. We arrived in the middle of the night, didn't we, Lowell? We walked around for a couple hours looking for a hotel room. There was a rugby tournament and a librarian's conference in Jasper at that same time. And so there were no hotel rooms. So finally, we found one way far away. And then the next morning, we, ha we had to walk to the train station to start. And as we walked, I just was looking around and I saw a sign for Pyramid Lake. I don't know why that just stuck in my head. And after that last challenge, it said, make your way to Pyramid Lake. And I was like, oh, I know where the sign is to that lake. We just have to get to that sign where we were. And then, ah, and we did. Yeah. Everybody else got lost on the way. It's so silly. But that also tells you as, as well prepared as you might be, as smart as you might be, as athletic as you might be, luck plays a huge mm. role yeah. in yeah. life and, and also in the game. And I, I find that when I look at the Amazing Race that on paper, Jet and Dave should win our season of contestants six, seven out of 10 times. They're smart, they're athletic, they get along well, they're easy going. A lot of different life skills. Yeah, the different life yeah. skills. You know, Jet's a former cop and a firefighter, lots of skills. And they're the only people who did season have come back and they were the first eliminated and it was because of luck mm -hmm. yeah running into a traffic jam that didn't allow them to get through and there they were eliminated so i was so disappointed about that i couldn't watch the rest of the season until yeah it was the night before the finale i think and i was like okay now i'm going to pretend this is a different season and jet and dave had nothing to do with it and i'm not heartbroken and now i'm going to start the season yeah. and watch it all in one day yeah. <laughs> yeah. and that's the risk you take when you do something yeah. a second time you're not it's oh. going to be a different outcome and that outcome may not be good even though you go in with high expectations. And so much pressure though, like I wouldn't have wanted to be in their position at all. To have just you be the only ones that are there again. That would be fantastic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that would be fantastic. We're a little different, Hal. <laughs> I guess that I've always felt I've had a target on me all the time. Yeah. Just bring it on, bring the target on, that's fine. But I would look at it as saying, because I've done this before, I'm the only one that knows you should only have one backpack. I'm the only one that knows emotionally to keep yeah. yourself in a, a better emotional state. Don't make the highs too high and the lows yeah. too low. As a 
previous contestant, I would think as big as that target might be, I'm at a bigger advantage over those other, other teams. When you say a target, unless there's a U-turn. You can't really sabotage other players. Yeah. The thing is, though, now teams are oh, making alliances. grouping up and helping each other, allowing those teams to progress and could affect the person that but, uh, lasts. But one of the big things is that if, and I look at this in this respect, if you are friends of convenience, meaning mm -hmm. so you're both at the challenge, let's help each other out. Well, they're yeah. not going to say, well, you've been on the race before, so I'm not going to work with you because of this. Mm. Both of you together, you're friends of convenience. And so that's what I would say that as much of a relationship that you may or may not have, that mm. to me isn't as nearly as important as having the experience of being on the race. So we didn't look at this like it was Survivor or Big Brother. We looked at this as it was a competition. I know why we lost in terms of our own mistakes that we made and I wouldn't make those mistakes again. Our big mistake was on our fifth leg of the race in Edmonton before boarding the plane because we were on the first flight uh, boarding from Edmonton to go to Regina. That was uh, Brett and Holly and Jet and Dave. And then we're all to race to this lentil bin. What I should have said to them is, hey guys, let's all work together when we get out of the airplane to get to that place together as opposed to we were all free-for-all and it took both Jet and Dave and us about 25 more minutes we got lost. So if we'd all gone out together and understand it doesn't matter if you're first, it just matters if you're not last. Mm -hmm. yeah. Working together really wasn't, I think that evolved. Mm -hmm. Well, we went into it with a bit of a different mindset because Lowell's visually impaired. So A, kind of thinking we want to help other people because we may need help at some point. That's one thing. And then the second thing is I, I just, I have a very soft heart and I just, I wanted to make friends and I wanted people to like me. <laughs> so it was like a social time for me. <laughs> Making friends was not even a thought process. No, I know that's where you and me are different. <laughs> well, because we have to understand in baseball, for example, I'm a first, I was a first baseman. And so the guy hits a single or gets a walk and he comes down to first base. And if you started to chat with that guy, you'd hear the chirping from your own dugout. Hey, take him out for dinner later. Oh, <laughs> They're the opposition. They're the enemy. And I looked at all those other teams. I assessed them. Jet and Dave, tough competition. I look at some of the other teams. I go, pick them off real easy. Pick them off real easy. So what I was trying to think, okay, how do we get rid of Jet and Dave? Because they're our competition. I want to get rid of those guys. You got to control what you can control not be negative or nasty or anything mm -hmm. to anybody but if you can help the weaker team over the stronger team if you needed to then to get rid of the competition i'd looked at it as a sporting event well even if, when you're talking about being first baseman i think i would be like this is i know it's ridiculous but i'd be like oh do you want to go on this base first oh you go ahead <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not how it works but i don't think you and hal could do the race together no. <laughs> i would drive you insane when they get to know the other people as people it's a lot tougher to race against those other people that's the other reason why I think All-Stars would be really hard is because you'd feel like you know everybody. Right. It really depends on who those All-Stars or All-Losers yeah, were, because that's what really they are. They don't bring that's back winners. Better, yeah, that's um, a better name for it. It really depends on who they are because there are certain yeah. teams, it'd be like, bring it on. I just want to, I, I want Crush. Them. Like, I, you know, <laughs> I want to sabotage them, you know. Hal is salivating over there right now. Yeah, but then there's other teams that, yeah, you, you have a soft spot for and... Yeah. 
it's funny because uh, Brett came to up to me on the second leg and he said, it was really good that you guys didn't try to hide that you were body break and you were Hal and Joanne. And I looked at him because we had a body break hat on and t-shirt. And I looked at him going, why would I hide that? Like, it's like... We were hoping it would help us. Yeah. We got on flights that other teams couldn't get on. And it's because we realized that they flag your name with, through the Air Canada system. So I used my, well, I used our middle names and we were able to get on the flights earlier because when they say, oh, the flight sold Smart. out. So then I used my middle name and we got on flights. And because of you guys, probably no other team could ever get away with that now. <laughs> you guys yeah. taught them a lesson. <laughs> wow, you guys, we've been chatting for a long time. But you know what? You can be recurring guests, okay? <laughs> no pressure. How much do you pay for this? How much? Do you, how much well, do you, you know, pay? I was going to say earlier when you were talking about how you got started with Body Break, I was like, like you guys, this podcast, not only are we not being paid for it, but we are paying to do it. <laughs> we will not be paying our talent. And oh, you are our talent. So we'll pay you in smiles and friendship. <laughs> hey, Lola, I think we should let these guys do the exit line. Well, until next, next time, time, keep, keep it, it and have fun. fun. What they said. <laughs> Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod from Body Break. That was fun. Oh yeah, we could talk to them for hours, which we just did. <laughs> We've had this opportunity to become friends with them through our opportunity of Amazing Race and to have this time to spend with them talking about their mindset, their past, their involvement in sport. This is just a fun opportunity for us and we hope that you enjoyed the conversation as well. There's a lot more to unpack with Hal and Joanne, I think. I'd love to get a chance to talk to them about their love story and experience with racism. We'll definitely have to have them on again, eh, Lowell? Have to have them on again. Down the road, they can speak to so many different areas. But we hope you stay tuned and continue to listen to more great guests coming up. Find more Hal and Joanne at bodybreak.com. You can book them for a speaking engagement or access their YouTube channel. And as Hal and Joanne would say, until next time, keep fit and, and have, have fun. fun. Copyright, body break. <laughs> Leading to Tokyo 2021, this podcast will be focusing on the stories of elite athletes. If you or someone you know has overcome obstacles on your quest for world-class competition and you'd like to be on our show, please find us at obstaclesandopportunities.com and reach out. Our podcast social media handles are at obsopspod. That is O-B-S-O-P-S-P-O-D. And our personal handles are at Julie Lowell Can. J-U-L-I-E-L-O-W-E-L-L-C-A-N. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.